Please enter the safe room. Please enter the safe room. We seem to be encountering some technical difficulties. Please stand by. Please enter the safe room. We seem to be encountering some technical difficulties. Please enter the safe room. Good evening, everybody. This is Larry Overman. Olaf Phillips will be joining us here shortly, and you are in the safe room. Tonight's guest is Guy McPherson, and we're going to be talking about uh, some end of days and kind of get his whole synopsis of everything that we're talking about. Um, I, I'm sorry I'm a little lagging. I got the uh, PowerPoint about, oh, an hour ago, and uh, so we're going to talk to Guy. Let me introduce you, and then we'll bring Olaf in as soon as he gets here. Guy, welcome to the safe room. How are you doing this evening? Well, good. Thanks for having me on. So, really quick, you know, Olaf was telling me he's like he's like he's a really awesome guest. We're we're super glad to have him on. So, this the end of times, you know, with the I have this I've heard some of the hypothesis of, you know, the magnetic shift and we could see an end of the world in 2016 by mass flooding. The earth is supposed to stop spinning and spin the other direction and all kinds of craziness. What is your views on that whole thing? I have no views on any of that. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Arizona, and I study climate change and okay. most recently abrupt climate change. So okay. that's what I know about. I don't know about a whole bunch of things, so I try not to talk about the things I don't know about. Perfect. So, you know, I've heard, so with all the climate change stuff, and it's, it's inevitable. We know it's happening. We also know that it's part of the cycle of the earth. You know, they're talking about, you know, the poles are melting, and then last year all the scientists get stuck in the ice. So what's going on with our climate? Because I'm not a big climate buff. I don't know that much about it. So what in the hell's going on? Well, you know, most people are, are familiar with what I would call approximately the 2005-2007 view of climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they watched Al Gore's movie or, or read the book. And so they know that climate change is underway, that the global average temperature is increasing and has been since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, about 1750 or so. And most people believe that if we just change the light bulbs and switch to Teslas, it'll all be fine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, those days are behind us. We have entered the arena of abrupt climate change and... That is being driven by not carbon dioxide in the atmosphere anymore. That was the primary driver for a long time. But 
we have triggered what's called the clathrate gun, and methane is coming out of the Arctic Ocean at an exponential rate. Methane has a warming potential more than 100 times more powerful than carbon dioxide, molecule for molecule, as a greenhouse gas. So that's a huge, huge factor that it now appears to be driving the show. So are we going to go into like an extreme warming spell, or is it going to trigger another ice age? Well, for a long time, I was quite optimistic and dating back to a paper by Schwartz and Randall, uh, consultants working for the Pentagon in 2003, I thought that that we might reverse the thermohaline conveyor belt or the Gulf Stream and therefore trigger another ice age starting in northern Europe and northern North America. Mm-hmm. But it looks like we're not going to be so lucky that, that in the uh, intervening approximately dozen years, we have so warm the planet that it looks like that that warming that abrupt warming is going to overwhelm that uh, reversal of the gulf stream and so i don't anticipate and i don't know any climate scientists at all who think we're headed into an ice age at this point so we're kind of so we're kind of past the point of no return with our climate. It's it's only inevitable in a, a matter of years or decades that we're looking like Mars? More like Venus, I would guess. Um, we're we're going to boil off the atmosphere. Or, I mean, boil off the, the water into the atmosphere. But we won't be around to see that, even if we have triggered a Venus-like state. Um, if we haven't triggered a Venus-like state, then it's likely we will enter one of the relatively stable states that Earth has experienced over the last half a billion years. And one of those stable states is five or six degrees centigrade warmer than we are right now. And the the last time it was six degrees warmer than than what I'll call baseline, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, about five degrees centigrade warmer than it is right now. Last time it was that warm on this planet, there were snakes the size of yellow school buses living in the Amazon, and the largest mammal on the planet was the size of a shrew. Okay. And so large-bodied mammals like us are going to... Uh, it would be an understatement to say we'll have difficulty adjusting to high temperatures, especially in such a short period of time. So basically what we've done is even if we do hit a point of stabilization... The causing factor, human race, it will be basically extinct and put Earth back into a reset mode. Yeah, that's right. And so it could be that temperature will stabilize at 5 or 6 or maybe 16 degrees centigrade above, above baseline. Um, but we won't be around to see it. Uh, on, on the plus side, it only takes roughly 10 million years for the planet to recover after a great extinction event before we have a vibrant, thriving planet again, okay. filled with all kinds of interesting species. We just won't be among them. <laughs> so there's, we're probably looking at, you know, 50, 60 generations down the road before that really starts to grab a hold and people start dying off because of that. Uh, no, I think we are... It, 
by by being at the in the midst of abrupt climate change, I'm talking about uh, people our age are going to have their lives shortened by climate change. Okay. So I'm not talking about generations down the road. I'm talking about well, Paul Beckwith is a, a world authority on methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean, and in September 2012, he said we. We could experience a six degree centigrade temperature rise in a decade. And then he, he changed that just a couple of weeks ago. He said it's no longer could, it's underway that we have triggered abrupt climate change and we're headed to five or six degrees centigrade warmer in a decade or two. Wow. And, and we haven't had humans on this planet at three and a half degrees centigrade above baseline. So he's talking about some big numbers there that I can't imagine we'll come up with a way to, to survive. Wow. So we're talking like radical shifts within the next 10, 15 years that we're, we're going to begin the extinction of the human race. That's right. In fact, I would argue it's already underway. Five million people a year die early deaths because of climate change. Wow. They aren't your neighbors and mine. So we tend not to notice. Badly underplayed by the corporate media in this country and throughout the world. So we're talking like so, Asian countries, Africa. Those are the countries most, we're talking about most, being affected immediately? Yeah, mostly at this point it's sub-Saharan Africa where it's brutally hot mm. and brutally dry. But, you know, we only have to look as far away as our neighbors in north-central California to find... People who, for the last six months, have not had water coming out of their taps. Six months. Wow. Because the water table has dropped so low that the wells no longer reach the water. And so there, there are hundreds of people in that region who are hauling their water in buckets every day and only have access to the amount of water they can carry. So, and, and again, massively underreported by the corporate media in this country. So most of us would never know that was happening. So pretty much the things that people are doing now with the, all these green technologies, granted they kind of slow down the carbon monoxide emissions going into the atmosphere, but there's, it's essentially not going to do any good. Well, other, than, other than creating an, ec an economy, basically. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. This is, this is greenwashing. As Tim Garrett, who's a professor at the University of Utah, as he pointed out, in a paper written in 2007, so more than seven years ago, only the complete stop of industrial civilization prevents runaway climate change. So he pointed out that civilization is a heat engine. As long as you maintain civilization in some form, you're heating the planet. And so it doesn't really matter if we switch to a so-called green economy or whether we keep cranking up the coal. Either way, civilization is a heat engine. We're overheating the planet. Damn, that's some spooky stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, it looks like... I mean, you know, I've not been a, a big believer, proponent in the, the classic Al Gore version of global warming. And, you know, my father-in-law is a high-voltage electrician. He's like, you know, what solar panels are doing don't affect you know they don't have by the they don't help you in the cost because by the time you pay for them and maintain them and go through all the costs and everything it's just the same thing as you know paying for the fossil fuel generation power generation that are coming out that's right these are not 
These are not alternatives. Things like wind turbines and solar panels are not alternatives to fossil fuel. They're derivatives of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So it takes an enormous amount out of fossil energy to make a solar panel. Not to mention the rare earths and all kinds of infrastructure that underlies the creation of that solar panel. You, you know, I, I live here in a straw bale house in rural New Mexico. I have solar panels on the roof. It's off-grid. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's not doing any good in terms of terminating industrial civilization. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we, where we need to go if we're going to, you know, Edward Abbey pointed out, this is the iconoclastic southwestern writer, uh, pointed out many years ago that civilization like an airplane in flight only remains aloft when it is moving forward. And so you, once, once you stop moving forward, the whole system crashes or the airplane crashes. That's, now, what's, that's what's needed at this point to even slow the thing down. Yeah. So you, what part of New Mexico are you in? I'm in southern, southwestern. Uh, nobody knows anything about where this is. I don't okay. know if you know. Um, well, the places. straw bell house thing, I've, Watched several specials on uh, oh Nat Geo and I think the History Channel had some things on there, and I, I find that very interesting. And yeah, so that just well, that's a really yeah, awesome thing that you're doing. You know, yeah, I mean, this place is is passive solar heated, so we have big south facing windows. We have a acid stained concrete floor. That's the thermal mass. So when the sun is low in the sky in the winter time, the sun hits the floor and warms it up. And then straw bale is our 40 plus insulation. Whereas you know, your average two by four construction is R11. R is a measure of resistance of, of air movement in and out, cold to hot. And so this is an unbelievably well insulated house that is mostly heated by this, by the sun. So, you know, it'll get down to around 20 degrees tonight. And the fire's out already, and I'll be perfectly comfortable. Wow. That is awesome. So it, it really is, you know, I never thought I'd be a proponent of any sort of building style, but straw bale in this part of the world is pretty astonishing. And, you know, had we, had we just done relatively simple things like orient our houses so the long axis runs east and west so that we have big windows facing south, I think we wouldn't have been in this mess. I think we wouldn't have been in run had we had we started that project right after World War II, uh -huh. instead of just cranking out uh, suburban houses that all look alike and, and packing as many into a subdivision as we can manage. I think we wouldn't be in this mess with respect to runaway climate change. Yeah, and there's you know is you know back when Henry Ford was making things and he was the guy in control. You know, he wanted to use and have a car that actually basically came from the ground. And he was talked about things of, you know, built using hemp plastic for fenders and body carriages and, and different things like that. And back at that point in time, that oil was the number one fuel source in the country. And then big oil came in. And I've, nothing against where I, my background, you know, I had 18 years in the oil industry and, you know, my whole family has been in, involved in it, but at the same time, you know, that industry may have never grabbed hold had we grown our fuel, basically. Right. And, yeah, Henry Ford with peanut oil as a primary fuel source. 
yeah, you know, mistakes have been made, and and those mistakes date back a long time, and they continue to be made. So, you know, there's not a lot of blame for you and I in terms of where this culture has gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the mistakes have been made over the course of the last decades, I would argue, even centuries. And so to think that we can get to this point having having lived within this culture for such a long period of time and, and turn it around on a dime, that's pretty delusional. Yeah. That's that's super just crazy. Um, Olav just texted me, and he's he says, I'm almost there. <laughs> so just an update, everybody. Olav will be here in just a minute. And uh, his youngest son, Felix, it was his birthday today. So we're going to give Felix a little shout-out really quick since we mentioned it. And uh, hopefully with all their rainstorms that they're actually being pounded to death in, you know, Martinez, California by rain right now. So it's long awaited and definitely needed. And then that's my wife um, as we're packing things up. And <laughs> She's like, I look terrible, but she looks great. But yeah, she's just in that packing mode as we get everything ready to go so we can hit the road tomorrow <laughs> well good for you that's and we'll actually be coming through uh, new mexico we're going to be spending some time in reno uh, for christmas and then we're going to be dipping down into tucson arizona and, and heading west over to texas mm-hmm. i lived in tucson for many many years so, so with the inevitable extinction that's going to happen and as as you say has already started to happen what suggestions would you make for people to get prepared? You know, to be what? What do people need to do to be prepared? Well, pursue what you love, uh, do what you believe is right, and don't be attached to the outcome. And and so this is. It's been relatively recently pointed out to me that this is Buddhist philosophy. I'm not a Buddhist. I know essentially nothing about Buddhism, but it seems to me that. We, as individuals, you know, we've always known that we have a short time span on the planet. Mm -hmm. We just don't know when the expiration date comes. So I think in light of the fact that our lives are short, that we should pursue what we love, uh, pursue what we think is right, and not be attached to the outcome. Because this machine, the machine known as industrial civilization, is going to grind on and grind us up pretty much no matter what we do. So spend time doing what you love. Spend time with the people you love and and pursue moments. Because in the end, I suspect what we're going to remember is a few moments when you're on your deathbed. I'm guessing most people are not thinking, geez, I should have bought seven more pair of shoes. No. You know, I, I suspect most people are, are thinking about the moments of joy that they experienced, that they contributed to during their lives. And, and so you're going to remember a few moments. Let's try to... to live in those moments and create moments that are truly spectacular for us and those around us. Absolutely. You know, for the last, what, five years, I've basically lived life as if tomorrow's never going to be here. Five years ago, I took a big gamble when I was in Houston, Texas, and I thought, my daughter and I came through Oregon on vacation, and I bought this old abandoned gold mine in the middle of winter. It's buried under snow. And I've spent the last five years trying to figure out where the gold is, where things are. Um, halfway through getting through that, um, a TV show landed in my lap, and we were on Sci-Fi Channel for two years. 
and you know I'm finding myself going back to Texas so that we can do more research. Um, I have I find out new things about this property every single day, and just by accident and by chance, new things come up. So, you know, when I look back at the way they did it, you it, it's really perplexing because the mine sets at you know 8,600 feet elevation, and everything they did was by hand. Even the road they dug, they dug it by hand just so they could get a wagon up there. And I'm sure in a wagon, that three miles took them all day long. Sure. So, you know, and that was right, I'm, I'm, when they did all that, you know, 18, 1890, so 1907 was when that road was actually put in. I mean, they're right at the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. You know, That's right. And I've got one of the only existing number six blower fans left in working order. That was part of the blacksmith shop that they put up there. And you look at how they got that stuff there, you're like, man, those people were hardy. That's right. And and at every step along the way, we we capitulated to convenience. Right. So it became more convenient to to use a bulldozer than to build that road by hand. Who wouldn't go for that? Right? I mean, so and and it would make a lot of sense, you know. Forgo the bulldozer. Somebody else is going to use the bulldozer. It's not like you're going to slow down the machine. Yeah, we are. The one thing I am grateful for is we we do take very good care of the property. For anybody out there that's watching that doesn't like mining, we have always been exceptional stewards of the land. We have not changed or altered it. Um, we we everything we do is underground and we keep it safe. And have had numerous inspections by the regulating agencies. And uh, the, the end game of it is there was, a, there was a lot of damage done 150 years ago by putting the dump piles and everything like that out there. And at some point when we're finished, we're going to erase all that and put the land back to a pristine mountain again. That's, that's awesome. You can't do any better than that. You know, if we had if we'd cleaned up every mess along the way, we wouldn't be in this mess. Yeah, exactly. So I know Olaf is going to be dialing in here in a minute, you know, Aside or in conjunction with the mass climate change, what other things are you involved in, and and do you get do you kind of uh, are you an advocate for? Well, I've only relatively recently come to the conclusion that we're headed for our own demise as a result of climate change. For I'm a conservation biologist in. So I've studied extinctions and habitat for species for a long time. And I, I, I recognize that given the ongoing rate of extinction, that we could very well take ourselves into the abyss because we don't know which of those species we depend upon for our own survival. Everybody knows we need bees because bees pollinate so many, so much of the food we eat. Uh, beyond that, most people think of insects as being pests, as being inconveniences, um, even though they, they really drive the whole show in terms of decomposition and pollination and all those things that, that give us the habitat we need to survive. So, you know, for many years, I thought that we were probably going to cause our own extinction because we were changing the habitat for other species so rapidly. So consider, for example, that according to United Nations report, 
from August 2010. So it's quite a while ago. It's from a conservative organization. It's probably pretty conservative. The estimated rate of extinction is 150 to 200 species a day. Wow. So that's a lot. That you is know, a lot. You cannot constantly crap in your own nest and think that you're not going to get a little shit on your toes. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's very well put. That's a great analogy. <laughs> that, is very, that, that is very well put. And so, so thinking that, you, you know, we think we're gods, really, and that we can get away with anything. And we're really quite masterful manipulating our environments and allowing us to survive in almost any environment. We have people in space. We have people in Antarctica, both for short periods of time, admittedly. And so we think we can get away with almost anything. But, in fact, when you, when you mess with the system long enough, the system starts messing with you. And so that's what we're seeing. You know, we're, we're seeing it's difficult to deliver food to everybody on the planet. Yeah, so... In me in terms of messing with the system, are do you know anything or have or have you ever studied any of the causes and effects of the HARP program, for example, and chemtrails? I'm only marginally familiar with those notions, um, mostly because I have focused over the last five years or so on the nuclear Armageddon. Hmm as a result of things like Fukushima and before that Chernobyl and before that Three Mile Island and, and now WIP, the waste processing plant in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So I focused on a nuclear catastrophe and the extinction crisis and climate change. And that's enough to keep me busy all day, every day. In addition, you know, I try to, I try to do what I tell other people to do and enjoy the occasional moment in my life. So I haven't been paid a paycheck for more than six years. I, I left the University of Arizona at the age of 49. So I'm out here interacting with my my human companions, my, my neighbors, and also trying to enjoy the first designated wilderness in the world, which is just a, a couple miles up the road from me. So I'm trying to sort of immerse myself in nature instead of spending all my time studying various aspects of civilization of, of this set of living arrangements that are, that are obviously making us crazy and making us fat making us ill and killing us yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot of happy stuff I, I don't like to spend all my time there <laughs> no i don't blame you um so you retired i'm guessing that you retired from university and you know you still do things there on occasion is that fair to say i'm professor emeritus and that means I can do everything I was doing before except get paid. So I don't teach any classes on campus now. I live nearly four hours drive away, so it's not very convenient for me to spend time there. I do guest appearances at that university and many others. Um, most of my time now is spent in public service, as it was before. Uh, I just don't get paid for it this time around. So I... I write a lot. Um, I've put out three books since I left the university, nine books when I was there. I go on speaking tours, so anybody who will host me and pay my expenses, I'll show up and, and do two or three events every day, speaking to a variety of, of audiences. So 
you know, I'm still remaining pretty active in still trying to participate as a community member in this community mm-hmm. as well. And so every Sunday evening, there's a potluck at a land trust a mile up the road. There's a dozen people sharing 19 acres and growing a bunch of their food, and, and they're all living off-grid, too. So That's awesome. You know, that's my tribe. And so I try to check in with them when I'm here on Sunday evenings. And Tuesday mornings, I have a, a coffee group uh, that gets together uh, at, at the guest house of a 97-year-old friend of mine. Wow. And we meet there. We meet there because he doesn't like to go to other people's places. And <laughs> we don't really like him being on the road either. I'll bet. No, it sounds like a really, really awesome thing you got going down there in your community. So, where can share with our guests where they can find your book? Um, I don't know if it's on Amazon or where they can go, but we are advocates and big proponents of buying from your local bookstores. So, mm-hmm. why don't you tell everybody where they can get your book or what they and the titles? And maybe they can ask their local bookstore to get it if they don't have it. Right. So all of my books and all of my presentations recently that have been filmed, all of my writing can be found at Nature Bats Last. And the website is GuyMcPherson.com. And last I checked, even if you spell spell Guy McPherson incorrectly, it still tries to take you to that spot. So, And, and there are little tabs at the top that indicate uh, it, my recent interviews, such as this one recent video that was shot when I'm on the road somewhere and one for my writings. So there'll be a a tab there for for the books. So you can find all the books I've been involved in over the last 25 years or so. And the most recent of those is called Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. And it's co-authored by a counselor and professor of history, Carolyn Baker. And so it's really interesting collaboration because she comes more from the from the interpersonal uh, counseling slash therapy perspective, whereas I'm a I'm a hard scientist. I'm the natural science guy. She's the humanities one, mm-hmm. and so it was pretty interesting collaboration. That does sound interesting. You get kind of I'm going to guess you get both points of view on the. Oh yeah, and it really is a dialogue. You know, it's it's a dialogue between us, connected electronically, and then coming out in a book that just came out within the last month or so, called Extinction Dialogue. And it really is the subtitle is is perfect. It's the perfect descriptor. It's how to live with death in mind. And awesome. I have a copy that I can show on the, on the screen here. Right on. Extinction Dialogues. So that's the latest. Do you have a, a PDF version for sale anywhere? I, I don't, although the, the publisher, Tay and Lane, again, all this is at my website, the publisher does offer an electronic version, which is great as nearly as I can understand because you can click all the links. Okay. So I've, I've accumulated a whole bunch of science about abrupt climate change. And if you have the electronic version, which costs six bucks or something like that, you can click all those links and follow the path to see if I'm just making this stuff up or, or what. You know? That's awesome. And what we'll do, just so you know, we've just started this, and Olav doesn't know about it yet, but what we'll do with this interview when we're done is over the course of the next week or so, I'll actually pull it back down off the server and edit it down into a shorter version, 
and we'll actually have it out on TouchCast. So as we're talking, we can actually put the links up and they can actually click on them and it'll pause the video and it'll take them right to it. Then they can click back out of it. It'll bring them right back into the video and we'll break it up that way because this is a really good interview and we're, gonna, we're providing some great information. And I will, I'll make sure we share that link here too. Awesome. Yeah. So we got books. We got all kinds of great information as far as your uh, papers. Uh, I would imagine there's just a plethora of research that you've done there. Oh, yeah, and I continue to do. So there's an essay at Nature Bats Last, which I call The Monster Climate Change Summary and Update. I first wrote it in January 2013. And it was a couple thousand words, like most of the essays I write. And I've just added to it since then. And now it's 15,000 words. And it has a link for essentially every statement there. And when I started, I believe there were a handful of self-reinforcing feedback loops or so-called positive feedbacks that is sort of like a, a snake eating its tail. Um, or a spiral that gets tighter and tighter. And and so when I started, there were a handful of those, maybe half a dozen. That was in January 2013. And now we're up to 44 of them. And, and you know, these are all rooted in pretty solid science. These are things like, as the ice in the Arctic melts, uh, the the ocean absorbs more radiation and... And the, so the albedo is reduced. It doesn't reflect as much radiation. It absorbs more radiation, so it causes it to heat up even faster. So the faster the ice melts, the warmer it gets, and therefore the faster the ice melts. So I was watching this um, show on H2 here just the other day, and they were talking about the magnetics of the Earth and how this new aluminum that's not, it's not magnetic, it's not really new, it's aluminum-26, that's also helping to play a factor in this heat. It's a radioactive aluminum. And it's also helping with the heat and messes with compasses. And, you know, there's one over, of course, it's the Bermuda Triangle. But there was this, there's like several or nine of them that go around the globe. Is that anything that you know or heard of anything yet? Never heard of anything about it, but I'd love to hear more. It was on H2, and I'm trying to remember the name of the show. Um... Actually, I think it was called, I'm not going to lie about it, I'll, I'll find it out everybody and we'll put it out on the Facebook page, and Guy, I'll make sure we send a, send a link to you, I'll find it and send it to you. In fact, when Olaf gets on here, whenever he gets here, then uh, I'll put it up and I'll find it for you and share That'd it. Be great. But there are, as you point out, there are various isotopes or species of um, the chemicals we learned about when we studied the periodic table of the elements. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, most people are familiar with, with carbon, because that's mostly what we're made of. In carbon-12, the relatively light isotope is the most common one. And then there's carbon-13 and carbon-14. Most people are familiar with radioactive dating. It comes from the decay rate of carbon-14. Okay. And so aluminum-26 is one of the species or isotopes of aluminum. I don't know anything about that one except what I just said. Yeah, they said that the only way to reverse what it's doing is with an EMP. Uh -huh. So, and I, I need to find it because I think you'd find it very interesting. And it was actually quite startling because um, it was, 
very similar to what we're talking about with the climate change and, and how it's affecting people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people getting lost. And it actually showed some uh, people that were in the Arctic that, and there's a, one of these isotope triangles down there where they, you could actually see where the guys were just, they died and the dogs died, but they walked in this circle, but they never left the boundary of where this uh, uh-huh. triangle sounds, and It was really bizarre. Sounds like the story of my life, walking in circles, being lost, <laughs> then you die. Oh, wait, that's all of us. You know, and talking about rare earth elements, you know, when you look at some of the decisions that were made, you know, we know without a shadow of a doubt that uh, atomic energy can be done. We can do it with um, things like thorium. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be uranium, but we choose, or the governments choose to use uranium so that they can take the depleted plutonium and refine it back into weapons grade so they, there's a, a use for the byproduct. Right. And, and that's, right. that's really sad. Um, in 1951, I believe... Boise State University actually had an aircraft powered on thorium. And now, with all this research and things that are going on, I believe it's Holland actually will have their first thorium-powered nuclear plant online. I want to say 2017, I believe, is what they said projected for that. Mm -hmm. So, yet another classic example. Mistakes have been made. You know, we, we took a wrong turn there. People ask me all the time, where did we go wrong? What, what turn was it that led us down this path? You, you know, greed. It, it looks like to me that we made, we, we came to a fork in the road about a million times in human history and we took the wrong turn every time. Mm-hmm. But yes, when greed is your only God, sociopaths assume control. And it looks like that's where we are to me. Yeah, that's, I would have to agree with you. Because I know, like, you know, there's things like rubidium that you can use in place of thorium. And we have an abundance of rubidium at the mine that I bought. There's enough thorium at this little bitty mine just north of Boise that has enough thorium to power the entire world's energy needs for 500 years. And the sad thing is, is even if they went online, they would have to literally go online today to have and immediately to have any effect at all. Right. Right, and so this is a classic case of money driving the outcome. You know, money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, and and that's what takes us down this road. Um, as my friend Michael C. Rupert said a few thousand times before he died uh, earlier this year, or if until you change the way money works, you change nothing at all. Yeah, and we keep we keep sort of doubling down on the way money works. Well, so I know Olav is home. He's in his office. And we are going to add him in really quick. Excellent. So we'll get him up here, and I'll make a slight adjustment on the screen. All right. All right, you're here. As soon as your uh, camera shows up. I'm here. There we go. So we have covered a lot of the bases. Um, we've talked okay. about his books and had some great conversation. I think it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I think I think we covered everything. It's like when a student missed my classes back in the day. Yeah, and that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like a student. <laughs> here, 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 would go up for class period. They'd meet me before class and they say, "What I missed?" You say, "Are you kidding? You missed everything." <laughs> <laughs> 
we covered the whole meaning of life. You know, when, when I was in anthropology school, uh, I had a professor who actually would take the whole class, he'd come in 15 minutes before class starts, and he'd write all the notes on the board. And he'd fill the board up. Chalkboard, I'm old. The entire chalkboard filled up with notes, schematics, whatever. And then he'd read it to me for an hour. So what everybody would do is they'd run in 15 minutes before class. As he wrote it down, everybody would write it down, write it down, write it down. And then five minutes into class when he's reading it, everybody got up and they left. Right. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a difference between teaching and learning. I tell people all the time, I taught my dog to whistle. I taught and I taught and I taught, but my dog never did learn to whistle. So that's a classic example of teaching without anybody necessarily learning a thing. That, that, that is, is awesome. true. Now, I was late to this because of something I want to talk to you about. Now, um, as far as I understand it, one of the premises that, that you have is, is the, the notion that we're, that we're approaching the, the 3.5 degree Celsius mark when we should start facing extinction, right? One of the things that's happening here in California that's interesting is that, that so far this December, we've had the wettest December in like 10 years. And we were just being pounded day after day after day after day by rain. This is the first time in seven years I had to sandbag part of my house. Right? We're at 160% of normal. But we're still in an extreme drought. And we're still, we're still facing massive water restrictions in the summer. Now, the climatologists here are telling us that's because the, the um, ambient air temperature in the mountains is too high for snow. And they've spent the last 60 years designing water systems like Hetch Hetchy to capture uh, snow runoff. And so now they're saying that they have to re-engineer Northern California's entire water collection system because they're just not going to get the snowpack anymore. Wow. Now, if that, yeah. is, not a, if that is not a confirmation of what I saw on this 65-page slide deck, I don't know what is. Well, you know, that's the thing. And some people are still stuck in calling it global warming when a much better phrase is climate change. Right. So you point out that you're still in a drought, but you're getting pummeled with rain. And that right. might be because there's an El Nino emerging. And, yes. and it could be a significant El Nino. Right. During any El Nino, you get lots of rain in California in the wintertime. So that could right. be what's going on. But as you point out, the long-term trend is dry, 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 and more dry. So oh, every year. Drier and drier and drier. Now, right. one, thing, one thing that was interesting, I actually happen to have a relative who's a farmer. And he's a farmer in the Midwest. And he said, and that every and people don't realize this, but climbing, um, but um, farming is actually very scientific these days. He has heat maps, nitrogen heat maps of his entire, you know, fields. And one of the things that they do every year is that they hire climate to tell them what the weather is going to be like. Right? And this is why I wanted to have you on. For the last couple of years, what his climatologist has told him is that the weather has shifted 
200 miles to the north. Mm-hmm. And it... Right. And, and the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, has this uh, seed zone. And, and you've probably seen it. So you, so you buy seeds to, to grow lettuce or carrots or whatever in your garden. And, and they're based on zones. So right. I live somewhere between zone five and zone seven here. Um, but it sort of shifts. That to them, October and November are fused into one month. They do the corn and the soybeans and some other stuff. And he said that he used to have to heat his fields with propane. And he would spend about $200,000 a year just in propane to heat his fields. He hasn't done it for five years. Right. Which he's happy about. Sure. Climate, you know, climate change worked out for him. Right. right. <laughs> but at least it's in frightening. The yeah, but it's frightening because oh, yeah. it's it's such a massive change, and it, you know you can see it again and again and again. These, you know, we went in California. We went for almost an entire year without rain. Hmm. I've never seen that. Yeah, I was. Now, I, was I was there yeah. on a. A couple of speaking tours this year, um, late September and then in early November. Mm-hmm. And holy cow, was it dry? It was very dry. Now, wh- <clears throat> one of the things that I wanted to ask you is that I understand the notion. You know, I I, I looked at the slide decks and and I I'm, I tried to understand. You know, you're not saying anything that that's out of the zone. These are things that, that have been said for some time, but for some reason, people aren't buying it. And you're, you know. Well, that gets back to, to our comment of not very long ago, until you change the way money works, you change nothing at all. That's true. You That's know, true. So, so, yeah, we've known a lot of this information for a long time. It was George Perkins Marsh in 1847, United States ambassador and naturalist, who pointed out that if we burn fossil fuels, we're going to warm up the planet. That's 1847. So it's not as if we haven't had any warning here. Right. Now, the the interesting thing that I see, and I have my own bend on this whole thing, but the interesting thing that I see is that, you know, I could only trace it back to 58. And in 58, there was a pioneering study on phytoplankton. And they, I think it was 58 or 59. And he said, uh, I I forget the guy's name offhand, but he said that phytoplankton could only consume 50% of the carbon dioxide in the air in 1958. And that basically, in so many words, because we're not covered by the FCC, we're screwed. And he said that in 58. Now, what what appears to have happened after that is is a climate engineering, attempt at climate engineering, to try to stave it off and you know geoengineering global dimming and all that and when we spoke before this whole thing the thing that you said that is the most frightening out of everything to me i can read graphs i see the the heat the water heat climbing there are fish kills and algae blooms that are being caused by that the most interesting thing you said to me was i said hey i want to talk about geoengineering and you said i'm agnostic on it because basically the implication was that we're screwed either way and that that is a frightening frightening thing right and in fact there have been several 
published research studies now in the referee journal literature um, that have taken on the topic of geoengineering in the wake of the United Nations um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their, their vaunted fifth assessment, which was leaked in September of last year, officially released this year. And, and they pointed out that in the absence of massive geoengineering of the Earth's chemistry, we have triggered irreversible climate change. Right. This is the most conservative scientific body on the planet. And, and they're invoking technology that we, that we don't understand. And subsequently, there's been quite a bit of research done on various aspects of, solar, of geoengineering, such as solar radiation management, putting reflective particles up in the, in the high ele elevation above the planet. And all the research indicates that those ideas will either ha do, do no good or will make matters worse. Mm -hmm. so, so the evidence for some sort of large-scale Hail Mary pass is that the Hail Mary pass is going to end up being intercepted and run back for a touchdown the other way. Now, one, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask you is that, you know, I studied anthropology. So the, the thing that, that, that struck me, even as an undergrad, was humanity's need to attempt to survive. Whether it's, you can or not, we have a, an inbuilt biological desire, need, de demand to attempt to survive the unsurvivable. Do you Absolutely. think, yeah, do you think that these things like the Nordic Seed Vault in, at Svalbard or all these bunkers that they build, do you think that is an attempt by somebody to put the infrastructure in place to try to survive this? Well, it could very well be. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, and, and I know that there are people who have money and they're moving to places where habitat will exist longer for humans than where they live now. I know this because they contact me and, yeah. and they, they ask me, where, where can I live the longest? None of those people, by the way, offer to take me with them. They just take my information and, and move I think on. You, you and I are in the same boat. <laughs> so now tell me, the, the one thing, um, one of the things, there are many things that I can ask you. But one of, one of the things that I was interested in is, how do you see this playing out in the end run? I mean, are we just going to burn to death? Is it just, are we just going to face a, you know, some sort of a cataclysmic, you know, dry out? I mean, how do you see the end coming? Because your books are about the mass extinction, megafaunal extinction is coming. So what what is, how will it manifest? Right. So I don't know how and what minute you're going to die. So so that's that's my first disclosure. Um, no problem. I'll take that. But, but that said, it's you know we we haven't had humans on the planet at three and a half degrees centigrade above baseline, and and as I indicated before, when it was six degrees warmer last time on this planet, the planet was dominated by uh, cold-blooded organisms. You know there were there were snakes the size of yellow school buses in the Amazon. The largest mammal was the size of a shrew, because large mammals don't deal well with the kind of wet bulb temperatures associated with six C above baseline. 
And and that's clearly where we're headed in the not too distant future is those very, very warm temperatures. And and faster than we've ever seen it happen before. Um, and so what that means is plants can't keep up with the changes. So we already talked about the USDA shifting their seed zones. Well, the USDA has been around for a long time, century or so, and they shifted their seed zone one, one zone over the course of the last 100 years. Well, the plants are moving at, I mean, the, the plants are unable to move fast enough to keep up, and especially native plants. So, you know, if as, as Paul Beckwith, the expert in the Arctic Ocean methane, if, if as this plays out with a five or six degree temperature rise within a decade or two, there's no way for land plants to keep up with that sort of change. And even if we try to move them, there's no way that the soils and the organisms within the soils that coexist with the plants that we see, there's no way for that to pan out. Right. So I suspect most of us will die from starvation. We just won't be able to grow plants. Some, some places like the interior of large continents, we know that the interior of large continents warm up at least twice as fast as the global average. So when we get to a two degree centigrade temperature rise at the global average, what that means is at least four C in the interior of continents. So what that means is we have, in the in the so-called Great Plains of the United States, we have the Dust Bowl that never ends. You know, it just gets Russia, right? Right? Yeah, Central Russia. Yeah, any place that we're growing wheat right now is going to dry up and blow away, and we're going to have the Dust Bowl that never ends. And you know, it doesn't take much to denature the proteins in land plants. It it takes a temperature of 125, 130 degrees at the, at the soil surface. Once you denature the proteins, plants all die, and then the, the wind comes along, and you're in the dust bowl that never ends. So I suspect a lot of people are going to meet their demise because they literally choke on dust. For most people, they're, they're going to die from starvation. Some people are going to die from lack of water. Um, I, I suspect that when when American Empire falls and... Paul Craig Roberts, I don't know if you know that name, he was uh, Assistant Secretary of Treasury in the Reagan administration. He predicted in an, an article written yesterday that 2015 is when American empire bites the dust. Okay, so whenever that happens, we know that we can't sustain the unsustainable forever, right? And this whole thing is propped up by fossil fuels, and we call them fossil fuels because they're fossils. Right? Right. So, so we can't maintain the set of living arrangements indefinitely. Every civilization is, is a, has, has a short temporal span, and this one is the most unsustainable of any of them. So whether Paul Craig Roberts is right or not, at some point, um, American empire meets its demise. And when that happens, it will be before we decommission the nuclear power plants in this country because they require a decade to 60 years to decommission. Right. And so one of the outcomes of that will be that, that people are not able or are not willing to do their jobs of keeping nuclear power plants safe. Where that goes... Well, and, the water, and the water. Right. 
Exactly. Cooling. The water in the cooling ponds. And right. so when the water in the cooling ponds is gone, then we have fires, the likes of which we have never seen in human history. Well, it's going to send I mean, they're, they're going to go critical and melt down. Yeah, they're going to they're explode in yeah. these catastrophic fires. And then they're going to melt down. But the spent fuel rods, when they're exposed to the air and they start touching each other, they're just going to explode. And we're going to have these unbelievably intense fires that are spewing plutonium and uranium and all kinds of cesium and nasty stuff out there. Oh, yeah. And and so if you you know if you live within a few miles of one of those nuclear power plants, I suspect you're going to die in a in a firestorm, the likes of which are going to be downright biblical. So wow. you know, pick your poison. But there's all kinds of poison out there. There's there's the dust bowl that never ends. There's the catastrophic meltdown of nuclear power plants. Fukushima times four hundred is where we're headed. Right. And so there's these spent fuel rod fires. There's uh, loss of habitat because we can't grow food anymore. And there's, there's all kinds of horribly um, horrible ways to die that, that, for the most part, we haven't thought of. Um, because in this culture, we tend to think we're pretty immortal. And that if we do die, we're going to live fast, die young, and leave a pretty corpse. Right? And that's right. the goal. So tell me about methane, sea methane. Yeah, so subsea methane. That's a whole other problem, right? Yeah, we touched base lightly on it, and I'd like to go into depth on that. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the subsea methane is found in, in subsea permafrost or in clathrates at relatively shallow depths. Clathrates or hydrates, those are synonyms, are just chemical cages around a methane molecule. So methane molecule, CH4. And it has a chemical cage around it called a hydrate or, or clathrate. And when that warms, and not very much, the clathrate breaks open and releases the methane, the CH4, into the water column or into the air. And that methane has a warming potential of uh, at least 100 times higher than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So molecule for molecule, CH4 is responsible for much more rapid warming than carbon dioxide is. So the, that, that methane is found in the relatively shallow continental shelves, um, typically less than 700 meters. Sometimes as shallow as 50 or 100 meters. And they were deposited there as a result of biological activity in the past. And so this methane is just dead plant parts and dead animal parts that was subsequently frozen and locked up in these hydrates or in sub subsea permafrost. So for example, when, when permafrost melts, like in Russia, when the permafrost melts, it releases methane. Okay, so that permafrost is breaking down and producing methane. And, and we have subsea methane at relatively shallow depth. Well, we've known for the last year and a half or so that a whole bunch of the heat that is produ being produced by industrial civilization is not being measured in land surface records, but is being manifest by warming the oceans. And it doesn't take much of a rise in ocean temperature to release those hydrates or those clathrates and cause the methane to come bubbling up out of the ocean. And this is particularly well known in the Arctic Ocean. 
but just within the last week or so, it's been reported off the coast of Washington State that methane is bubbling out of the Pacific Ocean, the North Pacific there. So methane is coming up all over the place. It's not just fracking wells. It's, it's so-called natural occurrence or release of methane from mostly oceans of the world. And so that's a really, really big deal because of, the, of, of a couple of things. Uh, the profound warming potential of methane in the atmosphere and the fact that um, some of the great extinction events in the past have been triggered by atmospheric methane. And one of those, 55 million years ago, uh, Earth experienced a, a 5C temperature rise within a span of 13 years. That's pretty fast. So we can experience a 5C temperature rise within a span of 13 years. And that's without all the mucking with the system that industrial civilization has caused. You know, that's, that's before humans even showed up on the planetary stage. We only showed up two, two and a half million years ago. Right. 55 million years ago, there's a great methane release that caused uh, a great extinction event that caused the die-off of more than 50% of the species on the planet. And it's, so, it's also combustible. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it has to be 5% or more in the atmosphere, 5% or more of the air in the atmosphere to be combustible. But certainly it's combustible. Methane is natural gas. They're synonyms. It's the same thing. So, yes, it can be burned, and, and that's been one of the proposals that I suspect will never be implemented. One of the proposals is that we mine all that methane out of the Arctic Ocean or as much as we can get before it's released and then burn it up. You know, it, you know my background, I, we talked, was, was the oil industry. And we used to, they have these filters where you can actually suck in the air and separate the gases out. And we've used some of those. There, we built some pumps where we had to pump nitrogen into the ground. And these filters would scrub the air. And what came out was high-pressure nitrogen. And the rest of it was released back into the atmosphere. Now, is that a filter of that kind of a design that was designed for methane, would that be something that they would be able to do to scrub the air? I suspect so, yes. But until you change the way money works, you change nothing at all. And there's no, there's no money in improving the planet. There's only money in destroying the planet. And fear. Well, yeah, there's a lot of money in fear. <laughs> as long as they keep us scared about destroying the planet and continue destroying the planet... It's, it's well, Right. Well, for example, the energy return on energy investment that you're familiar with from the oil days, energy return on energy investment is is one or or maybe not quite one or maybe just barely above one mm -hmm. for mining methane out of the Arctic. It's just an unbelievably challenging task to get that methane up and out and in, in, in available in a form that we could use as energy. So that's been proposed for the last few years by a group called the Arctic Methane Emergency Group that we mine the methane out of the shallow ocean. But the energy return on that is so low 
that nobody's going to make any money off of it. So we're right back to fear and money driving the show. Now, <clears throat> there is, around the entire Earth, a boundary layer of soot and a burn debris. Now, back when I studied this stuff, the theory was <clears throat> is that a large meteorite impacted in the Gulf of Mexico that caused tidal waves, and but it it caused tectonic fractures that created volcanoes and lit the forests on, and jungles on fire and dumped all that carbon up into the atmosphere, and it created a global boundary layer because we went into a nuclear winter. Right. Do you agree with that, or is it possible that methane releases around, because it's around the same time, is it possible that it ignited, and that's what created this boundary? Because, I mean, it's everywhere. Well, there What's is, the yeah, there's, there's ample evidence for um, um, interstellar bodies striking the planet and leading right. to global cooling that, that triggered great extinction events. Right. In fact, that's it's, the it's, dinosaur tree right. shrew, mammal tree shrews hiding below ground thing. Right. And, and so it's approximately evenly divided. The, the half a dozen great extinction events were in the sixth right now. And of those six, it's about half and half. Um, half were, were caused by catastrophic cooling. Mm. Sometimes, as are, are you hoping for an asteroid? I don't know. I think an asteroid is more survivable than what you're talking about. Absolutely. Nuclear, we can survive a nuclear winter. I mean, our military planners from the 40s, late 40s on till today plan for a nuclear winter. I mean, that's something that we can deal with. But what yeah. you're talking about, we're either going to we're gonna choke, we're going to starve, you know, we're going to dehydrate. I mean... Yeah, good times, huh? Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, it's great cool. times. <laughs> How do I wake up in the morning? <laughs> Why would you want to wake up in the morning? <laughs> you know, you're right. Cold is nothing. Cold is easy. We can we can handle ice ages. We've done it in the past. That's no big deal. We have less technology, right? We have clothes. And and even what we consider primitive people had the, the sort of technology between clothes and fire to survive ice ages. That's nothing. So, yes, I guess the best we can hope for is nuclear winter, a situation as depicted in The Road by Cormac Road, Earth. Right. Yeah. Yes, we can burn each other, we can melt each other down to our fat components and make biodiesel. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> the, thing, the thing that strikes me about what you're saying is that, you know, the methane releases... I mean, at low altitude, the methane concentrations would be higher. I mean, you really, if you have these these breakdowns in not only nuclear power plants where they go critical and they, they catch on fire, and, and a, a nuclear reactor on fire is unreal. I mean, you cannot put it out. But not only do you have that, I mean, you have all these other subsystems that chain. It's a chain reaction of things that will, hydroelectric systems that will overload and catch on fire in the middle of forests, big forest fires. If the, if the methane concentration at low is high enough, I mean, it's going to ignite. Yeah. And then you just have it's going to scorch I mean huge portions of the earth. 
Yeah, see, what I love about these interviews is we don't have to get very far in because I'm the most op- before it becomes clear that I'm the optimist. <laughs> yeah, but I wrote I wrote a book that is probably I would imagine it's probably too speculative for you, but I wrote a book that tried to prove that that somebody's planning for something, and they're trying to get out of here, mm-hmm. and. <clears throat> You know, well, pick, pick your poison, but they're tr- somebody's trying to leave. Well, yeah. Uh, the, the chief of NASA said in April of this year that we need to get to Mars because we're, we're going to run out of habitat for humans here. And, and he pinned the date we need to get to Mars as 2030. And Elon Musk of Tes- Tesla fame comes along a few weeks after that and says, that's not soon enough. We need to get there within 10 years. So 2024. And so, you know, these are people who have knowledge and in the case of Musk, money. So are the people making plans to get off this rock? Yeah, probably so. And, you know, like we talked about before, there are probably people who are making plans to persist here as long as humanly possible as well with things like the the sea vaults. But even even that, I mean, it's a fool's errand to try to live below ground, because you know if if we're talking if what you're saying is accurate, I mean, it's one thing to try to survive a nuclear winter. You go down there for 10, 20 years, you come back up, and it's going to reset. What you're talking about is basically going to scour the surface of the Earth. Yes, and will persist for millions of years. Right, because we've we've jacked it up to a point. Where, you know, if, if we have reached that tipping point, remember when I was a little younger, the tipping point was peak oil, right? And, and what's interesting about peak oil is that we rely on petrochemicals so much that the air scrubbers that Larry's talking about, we won't be able to build them because we're running out of oil. So even if we wanted to build these air scrubbers, they're mostly petroleum products that we can't build anyway. Yeah, but right, we don't have the infrastructure, here. we don't have the materials, it's all breaking down, right? It's, and it's not just oil, it's not just coal, it's rare earths, it's every damn thing. Yeah, right. Which we are very fortunate to actually... So you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet with no consequences, contrary to what economists have told us for the whole time, right? Yes, trust the economists. They they tell you the truth. <laughs> you know, as far as the oil thing goes, I mean that's why we're being nice to Cuba right now. There was a twenty was a twenty billion barrel discovery underneath Cuba. You, you know, and you know we're fortunate enough. The mine that we have is not only gold and silver, but we did go through a rare earth study last year, and, and we're actually the gold and silver is now becoming our byproduct. And so. Like I've told several people that I've talked to Rare Earths about, you know, we get so much of it from other countries that if we go to war with one of them, you know, China, for example, that owns the debt of the United States right now, we could, it would take us five years if we went into production today to meet just our strategic demand. And that's a scary proposition. But even, but China can't fight us. I mean, they're putting how many coal-fired plants online every day? It's like five or ten coal plants a day because they're running out of power. And that, right. that just exacerbates the problem. Exactly. And they're still operating. They don't, they're, the atmosphere over there is just horrid. I spent six months in China on two different 
stints and I spent a year and a half in Siberia. So these, you know, the, the permafrost and the swamps that are in central Russia, I worked in it, I know, and, and it's, it's some pretty ugly stuff. Um, I much prefer winter over there than I do summer because then the mosquitoes aren't, you know, they're the size of Learjets. They're worse than they are in Alaska. And, and when you get over to China, the air quality, it doesn't matter where you're at in that country, the air quality is horrible. You can be out in the rural area up near Inner Mongolia and it's nothing but desert, but the air quality out there is the same as it is in downtown Beijing. Well, right, and, and they're in a similar place in terms of their Industrial Revolution as we were 100 years ago. And, and 100 years ago, the air quality was nothing to talk, nothing to write home about in this country, you know. You know, we had coal-fired power plants. Um, I, I worked for uh, a big environmental or conservation organization in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area about 15 years ago. And so I had an opportunity to do all of the, the cultural highlights of Washington, D.C. over the span of about a year. And, and within the last year or so when I was there, um, the U.S. government had cleaned up the Library of Congress. And, and I saw some of the pictures, you know, they used to keep the windows open to keep it, keep it cool in the summertime. And there's a coal-fired power plant a couple of blocks away. And so the pictures from the place in the mid-1990s were just horrific. There's just soot on everything. There's just spectacular, gorgeous marble carvings. They are, are just unbelievably beautiful. And they were covered in soot. And that's Washington, D.C. in the 1990s. Wow. So is it any surprise that China is pursuing the coal-fired plant that we led the way on. You know, uh, of course not. With today's technology, though, you would think that they would, and they're all about technology, you know, thorium is in abundance. There's plenty of thorium, there's plenty of rubidium. It's everywhere. I mean, literally, it's everywhere. You know, I can take anybody to Eastern Oregon and hand them a ton of rubidium really easily. And with Holland going online in 2017 with the first thorium-powered power plant, why wouldn't China want to step on that bandwagon and clean their environment up? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I was sort of arguing about 20 years ago that we should be investing in, in solar panels and wind turbines and wave power, but not in this country, in China. You know, if, if the United States actually wanted to do something that would matter in the, in the long run, which seems far too optimistic today, we should have been investing in their infrastructure and make it cleaner than the coal-fired power plants. We did invest in their infrastructure by giving them a free trade agreement. <laughs> yes, there's that. You know, I mean, we can get into a whole segue about Beijing cooking their books and all this other garbage, but, you know, stuff that I know about, you know, but, you know, even as far as the energy conference just before Katrina and Rita, where the United States promised the rest of the world that our fuel would be up around $5 a, bar a gallon at the pump. And lo and behold, Katrina and Rita came through, and I, you know, my own conspiracy theory ideas almost feel like they triggered that with HARP just to meet their obligations so that they would have an excuse to jack the fuel prices up. I mean, now we're looking at gasoline down around $60 a barrel, but the gas price at the pump is not reflecting that same price tag. Because we should be down about a buck eighty-seven for a gallon of gasoline, right? And we're not, right? So how? 
So how far? I mean, obviously, this is a daisy chain. It is a this is a a catastrophic failure that it that will cascade. How mm-hmm. so? If I understand your research correctly, we're pretty far down the cascade. I mean, we're we're beyond the tipping point. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. On on my website, I have this um, essay, climate change summary and update that I started writing. January 2013, it was a couple thousand words. Now it's 15,000 words. When I started writing it, there were a handful of tipping points. Now there's 44 irreversible self-reinforcing feedback loops. So we're we're well past the tipping point and into the arena of dozens of tipping points. And these are irreversible at temporal spans relevant to us as, as human beings. I, I mean, I'm talking about temporal spans of hundreds to thousands of years. So... Five million people a year die early deaths because of climate change. We have every week a hundred-year event that induces catastrophic monetary loss and injuries and loss of life. And people wonder when climate change is going to affect them. You know, if you're in the families of the five million, you're there. If you're living in California and, and, and your well doesn't reach the water table anymore, you're there. So you have to carry your water every day. So, yes, we're much further down this road than the corporate media or the corporate government would have us believe. Because there's no money in telling the truth about abrupt climate change. I mean, consider any government or or official or CEO coming out and telling people that... There is no future. Can you imagine trying to sell meaningless crap in that environment? Could you imagine trying to sell an education? There's right. no future. Why am I going to college? Right. Why am I being indebted in a system that allows me to never write that off in bankruptcy, but instead I have to become a slave to the system for the rest of my life? Why would I do that if I knew the whole thing was meaningless? If I knew that there was going to be that I was going to have a short enough attention span, I mean, a short enough lifespan that I would never be able to pay off my student debts when I go to college? I think a lot of people wouldn't. Uh, I think a lot of people would take Nietzsche's words to, to heart, live as though the day were here. It's pretty nihilistic. It is. <laughs> well, but on the other hand, We've always known that we had an expiration date that was sooner than we can possibly imagine. That in the end, even if you live to be 100 years old, it's not very long. You know, I I know 97-year-old Frank, who's who's my neighbor, I have coffee with every Tuesday morning. And I suspect if I could get him to talk about it, he'd say it hasn't been very long. There's, There's a few memories, right? And so... So the goal, at least for me, is to contribute those to those memories and, and make for amazing memories. And, and, and on our way out the door to demonstrate the best of humanity instead of grubbing for that last, last dollar and, and illustrating the worst of humanity. So how, how long, realistically, I mean, how long are we talking? 20 years 30 years, I mean, it's it's here today, but I mean, how long are we talking about before the Dust Bowl? How long are we talking about before mass, because the mass, the methane releases are, are uh, <clears throat> they're a cascade. 
You know, how long before the conveyor belt shuts down and our weather's really screwed? I mean, how long are we talking about before these events that are undeniable? I mean, they're already here that are undeniable, right? I, I'm living in it. But, I mean, they're really catastrophic stuff. Yeah, it's difficult for me to imagine we'll have humans on the planet in 20 years. It's difficult for me to imagine that a vast majority of humans on the planet are able to deny the existence of abrupt climate change in five years. Uh, you know, I, the, the, the system, the system known as industrial civilization has persisted much longer than I imagined possible as a, as a result of peak oil, which you mentioned earlier. And, and so when, when, the, when industrial civilization falls, and I mentioned earlier that Paul Craig Roberts, um, Assistant Secretary of Treasury in the Reagan administration, so hardly a a, a voice it's from the left. Not a liberal. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. He pointed out in an essay written yesterday or today that he thinks American empire will fall in 2015. If that's the case, and... and and of course, it'll take the whole global system with it. It will. But even before we get there, that will be sufficient to cause global dimming because we'll stop putting sulfates up into the atmosphere. Sufficient to, to cause us to go to a two degree C temperature rise global average. And in the interior of large continents, that means at least four. I doubt we have habitat for humans. In the interior of North America, within a year after American Empire falls. So I saw, you know, before we borrowed the money from China, we had given, we had backed that money with U.S. soil, federal lands. And if we default on that next year, China owns that. Yeah, but... At this point, it's so far down the road that I don't know that they would take it, because most of it is in the interior, and and you're not going to be able to grow anything anyway. The national forests. I mean, that all that all that wood. They have to come and get it. See, that's the problem. That in order for them to come and get it, that that plays a peak oil scenario, right? They're going to have to burn massive amounts of fuel to get that stuff back, and it may not, you know, be cost effective. Right, and then what? Are they going to come over here and grow food so they can ship back? No, but they're shipping, they're shipping container loads of trees. Not for much longer, though. Weekly. I mean, not, not there's a farm over here that they're in Oregon where they are literally, every week, there's massive containers that are going out full of live trees to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's unsustainable. The whole thing is unsustainable. I can't imagine it's persisted this long. So where where's the place to run? So what's the what? Why I'm going to say Northern Wyoming or Montana? <laughs> I don't know. That's in the interior. Yeah, I, I don't think there's. You know, it, it depends on what your goal is. If if your goal is to live as long as you possibly can, then I suspect the place to go is as far south as you can get without hitting Antarctica. So here I'm thinking of places like South Africa and New Zealand Chile, and Chile. Southern Australia and Chile. Yeah, places that are far south that have, and, and there's several reasons for that. Antarctica is one, 
So this great cooling force that is about to be gone from the northern hemisphere, you know, that when the Arctic ice all disappears, as it will in September in the not-too-distant future, that's going to produce utter catastrophe in the northern hemisphere. In addition, um, there's such a strong marine influence in the southern hemisphere. You know, essentially all the land on the world is in the northern hemisphere. There's a third of Africa in the southern hemisphere and Australia and South America. That's that's it, right? So, and, and we know that land masses heat up at least twice as fast as the global average. And then finally, there's nuclear Armageddon. There's only four nuclear power plants in, in the entire southern hemisphere. So when, when the system fails, it'll, it'll be a while before cesium and uranium and plutonium and blah, 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 get in everybody's lungs and kill everybody in the southern hemisphere. It's going to persist longer in terms of habitat than the northern hemisphere. Well, that's that's but, a scenario of On the Beach, right? Neville yeah. Sweet's book On the Beach, that they all run to Australia, but eventually, even then, at the end of the book, they're, they're standing out on the beach and they can see the cloud. And it's like, we're screwed. Right, yeah. exactly. And so, so my suggestion, instead of looking for the place that will allow you to live the longest, is to look for the place that allow you to live the, the best. best. And, and for me, that's right here. It's in my heart. Right. So that's going inside and being, becoming an introspective human being and, and trying to identify my purpose in this vast cosmic play and and so for me this is all about not going to chile but going inside inside myself and contemplating what it means to be human at the most amazing time in history well i mean even if you go to chile what are, chile what are you going to do you're going to buy yourself six months a year yeah you know maybe even a decade we don't know yeah. And for some people, a decade is a long time. So, so there's a. If I mention this person's name, you would know him right away. He's a he's an IT guy who's who's been an entrepreneur for a long time. He contacted me right about two years ago and said, "I'm on board with everything you write about climate change. That's why I'm moving to Australia in two years." And I've subsequently found out that he's there now living in Australia because he has the kind of wealth that allows him to buy his way into Australia. That's a $2 million ticket just so that you can stay there, right? Most of us don't have that. Or you have to have a certain skill set, which is really, really small, allows you to get in. So he immigrated to Australia because he has millions and millions of dollars and that allows him to live longer. Okay, fine. We don't know how much longer. Must be a Microsoft guy. And, and so I'm I'm not going to name, but maybe if I had two million dollars lying around, I would I would go to the South Island of New Zealand and establish a homestead. And he contacted me because of the climate change situation, and also because of what I've established here on this homestead, which he used as a model for where he was going there with big orchard, and large gardens, and that. So, you know, whatever. I don't have the ability to do that. Um, and, and most of us don't, obviously. Right. But, but his, his pet is just what I would come to expect from people who have that kind of money and that kind of power. He has never once, I, I've asked him several times for small favors, and he has never once delivered on that. Instead, it's all about him. 
So, so he mines information for me and takes the the powerful sociopathic way out, which is the benefit of himself only. It's the way it works. Mm-hmm. That's why those kinds of people have the levels of success that they do, is because right. they get there by any means necessary. That's right, and 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 it, and they blow us away every time. Yep. It's like they do things and we go, I would have never done that. Who would do that? And they would do that. That's who. And well, you run out of things to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, this has been a, uh, a very enlightening. Yeah. <laughs> what can I ask you? It's been a very enlightening conversation. <laughs> well, scary, but enlightening. Well, <laughs> you know, it is. It is pretty terrifying because none of us. You know, I heard my whole life that environmental problems, and I would include climate change as an environmental issue, a predicament, really, not a problem. Um, I've heard my entire life that they would be something the grand, the grandchildren have to deal with, right? And I hear that today, that, oh, my grandchildren are going to have such a tough time. Well, guess what? I'm the grandchild. I'm all grown up. You're the grandchildren. We're all grown up. the impacts are starting to be felt by the grandchildren. Of course, we we can't keep saying that it's going to be the grandchildren forever. We can't kick that can down the road forever. So, so so we're there. When you you go to these, these, I'm assuming you go to scientific conferences. Rarely. I've been to dozens, maybe even hundreds in my, in my life. And they sort of drive me crazy now because they're all the same. I mean, what's it? I mean, what's the reception? I would imagine that publicly they poo-poo it, and then privately they they agree with you. Well, it's it's pretty interesting. I had a I did an interview with a guy, and I think it was Massachusetts, a radio interview a couple of years ago, and he then had me on his radio show about six months later, and he said during that year and a half between the first interview and the second one, he interviewed a whole bunch of people from the environmental or conservation community, and None of them would say on the air what they would tell him when they were off the air. They would all say on the air that it's not that bad. We can turn this thing around. We just have to do the, you know, we have to change the squirrely light bulbs and Priuses, blah, blah, blah. And then they'd get off the air and they'd go, now we're fucked. You know, we're, it's, it's hopeless. We're, we're beyond the point of no return. It's, it's a done deal. And that's just so disappointing to me. And Yeah, where's and I, Greenpeace? Right, right. Oh, and they're destroying indigenous lands in Peru, aren't they? Where's Where's the Sierra Club? Oh, don't even get me yeah. started on Big Green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what. Yeah. No, but I'm Peru. saying, you know, where, yeah. where are these guys? You know, well, but they know they're out there making TV Richard. shows, shooting water cannons at well ships. <laughs> but it's a but it's a it's a corp- The problem is it's a corporation. Exactly. Yes, you know, it they're, is. They're taking the money in, and they're they're as long as they're breathing, which is maybe another decade. As long as they're breathing, they're taking the money in, taking the money in. They're pimping the cause, and then they they have to know. Oh yeah, that big green organization I worked for fifteen years ago. At the time, they were just making the transition from a ninety ten model to a ninety nine one model. That is, at the time they were they were. Uh, targeting 
90% of their money to come from 10% of their members. And they were switching over to a 99-1, targeting the 1% for 99% of the operating dollars. And so that means they ignore, they essentially ignore 99% of their donors or their membership. Well, those are the good old, day, good old days. Now they're at a 99.9% model. You know, they're, they're targeting the uber elite wealthy people to get almost all their money. Mm-hmm. They have become a corporation. They have become the the worst of what we see in humanity. The, the transfer of wealth from the poor to the wealthy is one of the hallmarks of any civilization. Right. I'm, I'm in a relatively unique, unique position with respect to speaking my mind uh, because I left active service at the university nearly six years ago. And I haven't received a paycheck in that entire time. So that allows me to say what I want, sort of sort of unattached to a paycheck or other benefits. Um, and, you know, it comes at a tremendous cost, obviously. My, my wife and I live on her very small paycheck, well below the U.S. property line. To go from um, a, a, a tenured full professor making six figures for doing essentially nothing to this position is quite a quite a change in lifestyle, but it does allow me the benefit of saying what I think is actually going on in the world, using the evidence to connect the dots, and not claim that we can use industrial civilization to cure predicaments rooted in industrial civilization. The, the absolutely insane perspective that almost every other scientist I know takes. I mean, I, I go back to these conferences. I mean, is is that what happens? Because I know, yeah. you know, when I, when I studied, right, you know, it, it, the joke was always ancient aliens, right, because I'm, you know, I studied anthropology, okay, so, you know, one of the sub-disciplines is archaeology, right, so one of the, the favorite topics was ancient aliens, you know, on, on the surface of it, every anthropologist is going to, that's horseshit, I don't buy it, it's impossible, then you get them drunk, or you get them into a party, or you get them out, you know, on the side of the road, or whatever, I'm like, sure, there's stuff that I cannot explain, there are things, I don't know what the hell they were thinking, you know, so I would imagine, but you know, it's it's, it's all funding driven. It's publisher parish, publisher parish, publisher parish, funding, 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 and you're not right. going to get that for ancient aliens. So they they play the party line, they get the money in, they say what they got to say. I mean, it's all political. You know, I, I had a conversation just over the course of the last couple of days. I um, I'll be doing a, a webinar with uh, a group in January and February. And, and it'll be a four-part webinar on abrupt climate change. And I, I was hoping to have a guest for each of those four parts. And so I asked a, a well-respected climate scientist to come on and be my, my guest, and he turned me down. And, and the other people I've asked hasn't, haven't responded yet, which is sort of the, the, the non-response I expected, actually. And so I asked the person who turned me down, is it because I'm radical? To radical, which, you know, when we go to the meaning of the word, it means to get to the root of, but most people don't know that. So I ask, is it because I'm too radical compared to your perspective? And he, he writes that essentially, yes. Yeah, he can't be affiliated with me because he has a university professorship. Mm-hmm. And, 
and so that's the that's the conference writ small and so that's the kind of thing i see at conferences all the time is that we just need to do these four things and it'll be fine and i'm frequently on panel discussions with other individuals other climate scientists and there, there are two characteristics of these panel discussions one i always go first so that everybody who follows can rebut everything i have to say right, right. i never get to go last and no coin flipping for you huh <laughs> and the other attribute is that every single person on the panel is paid within the university system and so they continue to tout the university line that we need to keep civilization going obviously that's the only way to live even though the science says exactly the opposite the science says only complete collapse of civilization prevents runaway greenhouse. So these people are, are, are in the, are, they're the cockroach in the belly of the beast saying they're, they're gonna change things from the inside. They're, they're in the belly of the chicken, right? They've already been swallowed. They're gonna change things from the inside. Well, the inside means you're the cockroach in the belly of the chicken, you're already dead, you just don't know it yet. And so continuing to promote the omnicide that is civilization seems like a bad idea to me, but that's the path they're headed down and I, and I know where it comes from. It comes from, if this is the only way you've ever lived, it's the only way you know to live. And so it must be the right way. You know, I, 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 once you've once aired, you your webinars, aired your webinars, we would mm -hmm. love the opportunity love the to rebroadcast those. those. All right. And we'll put it in our loop and we'll just let them loop. Right. Yeah. Right. right. I'll, I'll talk to the, to the folks who, who run it. The, the webinar company Let's see how we can make that happen okay yeah I, I'm, I'm almost speechless and that don't happen very often it's been an amazing <laughs> evening and I'm just my mind is blown I'm thinking okay now we got, we're heading down a path I'm partying for the next 15 to 20 years well you know this is what I tell people all the time pursue what you love and, and, and people tell me, well, you know, you're just going to turn people into hedonists. And I say, really? Americans, hedonists, how the hell would I tell the difference? We do what we want. We have the world's reserve currency. We've been doing what we want my entire life. When I was in active service at the university, for the last five years I was there, which was uh, 2004 to 2009, we'll say, I didn't meet a, a single student or, or at least very, very few students who hadn't made the obligatory trip to Europe when they were in high school to, to, to interact with another culture. And I got two problems with that. It's not another culture. It's the same culture. If you want to see another culture, go to the Indian reservation 20 miles from town. You don't need to go to, and, and I have two problems with that phrase, Indian and reservation, but I'm not even going to go there. Yeah, I completely That's another interview. Yeah, that's a whole other deal. <laughs> and we can go on for a couple hours with that one, too. Yes. Yeah. The, the, I do not and agree. And so every, every single college student feels entitled, entitled to visit Europe before they even land in college. I was lucky. I grew, I grew up in Europe, so I didn't have to do that. <laughs> I, I, I made it over there in my late 20s, and even for the industry that I was in, I was extremely young to be doing that, but I was very fortunate in my late teenage years and the fact that you know my dad had been in the industry for 20 years at that point. 
you know, so I kind of had a legacy, but then also I was one of the youngest operators for Schlumberger, and I was I knew the equipment before I could even drive the equipment, and that's kind of what landed me overseas at such a young age because all my you know colleagues were all the age that I am now, late thirties, early forties, and it was just so it was, I was very fortunate that I got to tour the earth a couple of times with and being under the age of 30 and non-military. Right. And, and it was a different time, you know, and, and even then the, the change was transpiring. I, I was, I'm 54 and I was the first person in my family to fly in a commercial aircraft. Wow. That includes my parents. You know, my parents, my older brother, my younger sister, I was 17 when I flew in a commercial aircraft, and I was the first person in the family. It was just a different time then. Now there's this expectation, this entitlement to all of the toys and conveniences that we have. And contemporary college students just can't see beyond their smartphones, you know, that, the, that there, there might be a different and perhaps even better way to live. Well, you know, what What you say, it's very interesting to me because, again, you know, I, I studied history and my, my father studied history. We've had these conversations and the, the, the hallmark of a massive civilization, whether you're talking about the Romans or the Egyptians, you know, the Maya, whatever, is that they reach a pinnacle, then there's a complete and utter collapse. I mean, the Romans expanded beyond their capability. They were forcing the... You know the edge, uh, the edge protector. It's to send food in to Rome. Eventually, they got tired of doing that. They stopped. The Romans started starving. The whole thing fell apart, and then it kind of reset. And every time, it resets and it resets and it resets and it resets and it resets. I mean, even in small scale populations, you see this. You know the Easter Island thing. That if you, you know. A, beautifully forested island what do they do they cut down all the trees now what is it? it's a barren rock I mean, it, it resets 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 and it you know we're we're cruising toward that eventually the the difference in what you're saying is that it's eminent versus and and the the economists that you talked about you know that it, it's it's eminent versus being we're you know we're no longer kicking the can down the road we ran out of road that's that's the radical thing of what you're saying not what you're saying is not radical. The time scale is radical. And that's, that's what I find fascinating. That's why I wanted you on here. It's because that time scale is insane. I, yes. I wouldn't call it insane. It, it sounds no, no, no. Like... You understand what I mean. Is that it's, yeah. it's insane oh, yeah. in its implication that, that we are that eminent. I mean, you know, I remember a few years ago, I got a climatologist. I used to work on, another, on a radio show. I got a climatologist to come on because even a couple of years, just a few years ago, there was an eminent fear that the conveyor belt, the, the, the cold, the hot water rotation inside the Atlantic was going to shut down. And what the ramifications of that happening, because all the ice is melting, it's dumping massive amounts of cold water in there and it's pushing that layer further down and eventually that, that current will stop. And when that current stops, the entire Atlantic, you know, climate collapses. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. right. And it wasn't that long ago. Schwartz and Randall, uh, consultants for the Pentagon, wrote a paper in 2003 describing just that scenario and, and indicating that it could happen within the span of 10 to 20 years. 
And and so yes, we've we've known about that, and it looks like that's been overwhelmed by overall planetary warming. Right. So, but but yes, it is insane. Um, you know, other civilizations. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying you're insane. It's just the the speed. Right. It's accelerating. Right. Absolutely. Other civilizations have collapsed, and the survivors came back, and and they have forsaken civilization. And so here I'm thinking about the Chacoan culture near where I live and the Membres culture and the Olmec in what is now Mexico. You know, they had grains, and so they were, they were able to go into population overshoot locally. They were able to build cities. And, and, yeah, and they collapsed. And when, when the survivors came back, they returned to hunting and gathering. They didn't go down the road, even though they knew about grains, they knew about corn. They knew they could store corn and get through the tough years, right? But they didn't. And we're too late. We can't make that choice. Even if, you know, we, we've triggered runaway climate change. We've triggered about climate change. So there's no going back at this point. And to forsake civilization, even after, say, the 1950s, would have been suicide because then all the nuclear power plants would have melted down catastrophically. So, you know, there's, there's no escape this time. Is what it amounts to. It's, it's Easter Island at the level of the planet. Right. If if we learn anything at all from history, it's that we don't learn anything from history. That is true. Well, um, we got the last ten minutes here. Um, normally, I go over. I'm trying really hard to not go over this time. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you uh, give us a rundown? Where can we find your research? Where are you going to be speaking? Tell us about the webinars. Yeah, the webinar will be with a group called SyncCast, S-Y-N-C-H-C-A-S-T. I think it's at SyncCast.com. You can find that and all my speaking tours at NatureBatsLastGuyMcPherson.com. And I I tentatively have speaking tours arranged for um, post- Washington State, perhaps down as far south as Portland, Oregon, um, in and around New York City, and then back to California, all the way from the Bay Area down to Orange County, all that between now and the end of March. So the only one that is that is pretty firmed up at this point is mid-February to the first week of March in and around New York City. And again, you can find all this at, at Curtain.com, and there's a little coming even tab up there at the top that tells you all that. You can also find under the pad, the tab right next to it called Written Works. You can find information about all of my dozen books and hundreds of other articles I've written. Um, there's, a, there's a tab right next to that one called Interviews, and that's where this will be in the not-too-distant future. And then a bunch of recent video, and there's also a few films that have featured me. And so you can find my work in film, in three films so far, and another handful, I guess, underway. Because people find my message bizarre enough that they want to make a movie about it. It's not bizarre. I mean, it's it's, it's just completely frightening. Well, you know, it is... It's a loss. I, I don't know what to say. Well, well, right. It's not bizarre. It, it, I understand exactly what you're saying, and it, and it is history. The Romans. I'm going to go over again, Larry. The the Romans. There's a famous 
study where there was a port that the Romans had. The, the name escapes me at the moment. Beautiful, uh, deep harbor port. And they they ran the ships in and out of there constantly, constantly, constantly. And because of this, the, the port expanded. More population, more merchants, more need for storage, whatever. So they kept building back. And every time they build back, they cut down the trees. And they keep pushing it back and cutting down the trees and pushing them back. And cutting. Eventually, they destabilize the earth because they cut down too many trees. The roots are dead. So the earth comes sliding down a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Over five or ten years, they filled the harbor up. And then they had to abandon it. I mean, it, it's just, it's not bizarre at all. I mean, it, it's it's frightening because, you know, this is on a global scale. But, I mean, yeah, we've done this to ourselves before. Right. Uh, only, you know, once, once the first civilization arose a few thousand years ago, we have done nothing except pursue the path of civilization, various civilizations. And every time we see the civilization implode, and every time we think that will happen to us. <laughs> and every time it happens to us. <laughs> you know, part of this move is we're not, we've put all of what we want to keep in storage, and we're building a tiny home. Mm -hmm. So, when, and we'll be off the grid. Um, as we go to a couple places and open up a couple of offices and, and still continue to broadcast, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of, uh, I'm okay with it. It's my wife that has a hard time with letting go of so many things. You know, you work really hard and you have these dreams to now realize and to kind of come to terms with the fact that you don't need those and your dreams have to change or dreams do change. And, you know, in order to, for us to sustain and have that, what I thought was going to be, you know, another 40 years. <laughs> Let's cut it in half, Larry. Yeah, so it's like, you know. <laughs> I'll make it to 60, all right. Yeah. Well, 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 so yours is a classic case. You know, I, I, I love that you're downsizing. Um, sort of forsaking the American dream of bigger, more, faster all the time. Uh, this this notion that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet, which is the American dream. George Carlin pointed it out best. It's called a, a dream because you have to be asleep to believe it, right? Yeah. And you can't you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. Uh, to think that you can. To, to paraphrase the economist Kenneth Boulding in 1970, to think that you can requires that you be insane or an economist. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say that's redundant, by the way. Yeah. And and so here we are. What what do you do? Um, I downsized as well. So I live in a 700 square foot house. You know that's pretty tiny by American standards. Mm -hmm. And I live in this homestead, which I established and grow a bunch of to to specifically to grow a bunch of food and put in a big orchard. And, goat shed and chicken coop and duck cows and the whole thing, right, to, to change the way I live. It made no difference in terms of the, the path of the machine. Um, so what we have now, what we have left at this point is to pursue what, what we view as a life of excellence and to pursue love, to do what we love, Absolutely. which is what, you know, we should have been doing all along and one of the reasons I regret leaving the university because I loved that life. I was a great teacher and a, a pretty decent researcher and I left. Um, and it was, it was a mistake. 
So do what you love. Yeah. Uh, you know, I only took one semester of college before I realized that I was going to make more money in the oil industry. And I think if I'd have had a professor like you, I probably would have stayed with it because it's been absolutely intriguing and mind blowing. And the professors that I had when I was at, you know, Western Wyoming, it, it just, they were boring. And it could have been the classes I was in. They were just, it was boring. No, mostly professors. Just, you know, people think that, 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 that you must be the best, best and brightest if you're in academia, if you're in the ivory, ivory tower. But no, the, the, you know, half those people are, are at below average intelligence too. You know, it, it, it's mostly a bunch of people just like everybody else in this culture who is following the cultural path pursuing the money and doing as little as possible to make as much money as possible. There's, but the motivation, in my experience, was lacking for most of those people. It was not to try to get people to discover anything. It was to just go to their job and do their job and collect their paycheck. And, and that's horrible, you know, because it's one of those rare positions in the world that you can... That, that is actually a noble profession where you get to influence young minds presumably in a positive direction and and lead by example and and for me that meant inquiry my i ran my classes for the last 10 years as anarchy as we're all in this together as we're not going to focus on me the sage on the stage we're not going to focus on you as the customer instead we're going to focus on the subject and all of us have something they can bring to the table. The point is to take care of yourself and take care of your neighbor and make sure that you that nobody gets left behind. That, that, that we're all in this together. We're trying to learn as much as we can, and that means me too. And it, it's sad to see what the professoriate has become. Uh, I, I think the profession left me before I left it. Well, look. In, in our final moments, the, the one thing that I, d I do find solace in what you're saying is this message of pursue what you love because that's pretty much all you got. And I, I think that, that that really is, you know, the, the highlight of this. Two hours, it's 99% cataclysmic doom, but the last 1% is really the most critical, and that, that's the way it usually works. And, you know, I, I do want to thank you for that perspective. I mean, I think that that really is the powerful message to, to take away from this. Well, uh, you know, this, this information, for me at least, just reminds me that I'm mortal, that my life is short, that, that birth is, in fact, lethal, as we've all known since we were 10 years old, right? And so it's just a reminder to live with urgency and to live with love in mind. Well, thank you very much for coming on the safe room. Maybe not so safe, <laughs> as we've discovered. But, you know, it was wonderful having you on. Uh, if we're still around in a few months, maybe we'll have you on back so that you can give us an update on how screwed we are <laughs> and remind us to keep it real and, and you know, love, love our neighbors and love ourselves and love our kids and, you know, be happy. I think, you know, if there's one positive thing that comes out of this is, is you got to be happy absolutely yes absolutely you know we don't know how much time we have let's make it good let's make it decent let's pursue lives of decency that's all i'm asking really and and thank that, you both oh thank you, know, you. Thank you. 
And on that note, everybody, you know, have a wonderful (laughs) night. Have a great weekend. And we will not see you after Christmas. So everybody have a wonderful Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And this is going to be on replay. And when these uh, webinars come out, hopefully we'll have access to them and be able to replay them for you. And, you know, God bless and good night. Yeah, we'll, we'll post updates on the website. Check them out. We'll be back uh, after the holidays. Night, everybody. Thanks again, Guy. Excellent Thank interview. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Bye.